Hello, my name is Robert Hills. I'm a professor of medical statistics in the University of Oxford. And for about 20 years, I worked on the United Kingdom National Cancer Research Institute, the NCRI Trials in Acute Myeloid Leukemia, or AML. In this podcast, I will be discussing how to document clinical trials and the importance of documenting clinical trials correctly. Development of this podcast has been funded by EHA. To listen to other related materials, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. Documentation is key to running a clinical trial. Let's think about why we are running the clinical trial and the importance of documentation will become apparent. The ultimate aim of any trial is to change practice and improve outcomes for patients. In other words, as part of the clinical trial, we need to persuade our clinical colleagues of the results of our trial and make it clear what the interpretation of those results should be. If there are any doubts about the conduct of the trial, then it is less convincing at the end of the trial. And as such, one may not change practice for the better, even when the trial is positive and demonstrates a real improvement. Documentation is a safeguard for this. What it does is it demonstrates that the trial has been correctly run and ensures that evidence is in place of what has been done and what has been found. There are, of course, legislation in place for documentation of clinical trials, but fundamentally, we are here to provide a record of what has happened, to ensure that we can accurately assess the benefits and risks of any treatment, to ensure we haven't missed anything out, and ultimately to protect the patients. The earlier we do these things, the more chance there is of picking up any problems. A clinical trial is a complex operation, and as such, things are likely to go wrong over the course of the trial. If we have documentation in place and we have procedures in place to be able to track the progress of the trial, then any problems can be picked up in real time and we're not left at the end of the trial desperately trying to scrabble around to get extra data or to try and interpret something where, for example, compliance is low. Our documentation up front will show that the trial is feasible, ethical, and is answering the question we want it to. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to have a trial master file, which will contain our protocol, that is our plan for the research, what we're going to do, our case report forms, our safety reporting criteria and processes, and things like a statistical analysis plan and skeleton reports for the people who are going to look at the trial as we go along. And I'll come back to that in a minute. All of these things are part of getting sponsorship for the trial, 
and indeed for getting ethical approval and approval from the appropriate medicines agency. Obviously, one wants to strike a balance in terms of the amount of documentation one is producing. Too much documentation makes the trial difficult, and in particular, too much documentation to be completed or registered by sites could put sites off from recruiting patients, and that's a bad thing. It's just like data collection. We need to collect what we need and what is important for the trial, but it's a waste of time to document or collect things which are not going to change anything at the end of the trial. Of course, if we document too little, there is the possibility of missing issues and problems within the trial. And this is why having interim reports is so important. Those interim reports identify issues with recruitment, possibly with things like the randomization process, whether it has been subverted at a site. In other words, a site can guess the next treatment allocation in a randomized trial, or whether data is not being collected accurately or in a timely fashion, or indeed the data that is being collected is not the data we're expecting to be collected. It will help identify whether there are things such as ambiguous questions. So before the trial begins, it's important to lay down what one wants to do. This is what the protocol is designed to do, as are the case report forms. It doesn't mean that everything is set in stone. As things change during the course of the trial, then of course, the documentation may change also. The world doesn't stand still. And indeed, we may find that some tweaks to eligibility are required in order to get uh, sufficient patients into the trial, or indeed, to reflect the current clinical question of interest. It doesn't mean, though, that the statistical analysis plan needs to be set in stone before you start. The statistical analysis plan can evolve also over the course of the trial. What is important, though, is that the statistical analysis plan is finalized and locked before the main analysis is undertaken. Why do we do this? This is to guard ourselves against accusations that we have changed the analysis plan purely to get the answer that we want. It's not a case that one must do the right thing. It's also a case that in convincing people who may be skeptical about a treatment, that we are seen to be doing the right thing as well. And this is why documentation again is important. As a trial begins, it's important to consider the reports that are going to be required as you go along. There are various different groups that help monitor the process of the trial. There's the trial management group, which consists of the principal investigator, statistician, trial managers, uh, and people like that. This is largely internal and is there to help ensure that the trial is running smoothly. The trial steering committee will include independent people 
who provide an independent oversight and help reassure the sponsor that everything is going well. And they will need a report as well. A lot of trials will have a data monitoring committee. The data monitoring committee's job is to ensure that the trial remains ethical and that the data are of good quality. They often see unblinded data in a randomized trial. And we will be discussing the data monitoring committee in a little more detail in another podcast in this series, All Good Things Must Come to an End. The regulatory authorities, people like the Ethics Committee and the Medicines Agencies also require periodic reports And in particular, the medicines agencies will need to see reports relating to safety. This could include serious adverse events and will definitely include SUSARs, serious, unexpected, severe adverse reactions. These are reactions, in other words, believed to be linked to the drug in question, which are serious and unexpected. They're not already listed in the drugs investigational brochure or summary of medicinal characteristics. The funders will need to see reports to ensure that the trial is proceeding as planned and that there isn't going to be a nasty surprise in terms of a requirement for a lot of extra funding to complete the trial. It's important to consider precisely what each report should contain. The data monitoring committee will see the data in the most granularity and will see reports of outcomes split by treatment arm. They are not involved in the direct running of the trial. And this is very important. They are independent. And this is why they are allowed to see this data the data should not be shown in that format to the trial steering committee or the trial management group. However, it's important to demonstrate that recruitment is continuing, and in particular, whether it is on target, ahead of target, or behind target. It's important to consider that the groups, if there is a randomized trial, are suitably balanced, It's important to check that the patients who are entering the trial are actually eligible for the trial. Uh, And indeed, in the case of trials which are under recruiting, it may be useful to have data on screening logs, which will identify whether or not a lot of patients are refusing the trial. Uh, One example would be the LRF or UK AML 14 trial which tried to randomize patients between intensive and non-intensive chemotherapy. The trial itself recruited about 1,800 patients. Uh, Nearly 1,500 of those were recruited to the intensive comparisons and the rest to the non-intensive comparisons. What's important is that of those 1,800 patients, only eight were randomized between intensive and non-intensive chemotherapy. By spotting this, it demonstrates that the question that was being asked was not one that either patients or clinicians were willing to sign up to. Clinicians and patients clearly had had their discussions and decided beforehand 
whether or not to look at the intensive or the non-intensive chemotherapy options. This sort of review of recruitment can stop one flogging a dead horse uh, or decide that perhaps the eligibility criteria need to be widened, number of sites need to be increased. As it is in this case, in the AML14 trial, that randomization was largely abandoned because it was never going to provide reliable evidence on whether or not to give intensive chemotherapy. These reports all need to be reviewed periodically. And periodically, of course, is a wonderful word. It means whatever I want it to mean at this stage. Um, periodically really means that there is enough opportunity to change direction if one needs to, and that one does not end up going in the wrong direction for too long. So the definition of periodically will depend largely on the rate of recruitment of the trial and whether or not one can make changes in the time frame imaginable. If a trial is recruiting incredibly quickly, then it becomes very difficult to make changes. If a trial is recruiting quite slowly, then of course, reviewing the data too frequently is just a waste of everybody's time. And it becomes harder to get those independent experts on the trial steering committee and data monitoring committee signed up to taking part in the committees. So they should be compiled in a time frame that reflects a combination of the recruitment rate, the maturing of data, and also the likelihood of other things changing in the outside world. Um, generally speaking, a trial management group will be the group that meets the most frequently amongst these. Um, the safety reports to the medicines agency and the ethics committee are generally about annually, uh, and the other reports would be somewhere in between, depending on the rate of recruitment. And indeed, the trial steering committee or data monitoring committee may ask for an additional report if they see something that might be interesting as they go along. What's important, again, is that these reports have to be sufficiently complete, but not overly complex. In other words, in the same way as we talk about the documentation for the trial being a balance between too much and too little, and the data collection for a trial being a balance between collecting too much and missing important aspects of the treatment, the same thing is true of the reports they need to be sufficiently clear that any patterns can be spotted. But it's much easier to be clear and spot patterns within a table than we're obviously within a line listing of every patient in the trial, especially if your trial is getting large and is a few hundred patients long. The content, therefore, is something to be agreed between the members of the relevant committees and the trial management group. There is a lot uh, to be said for trying to keep these as short and as simple as possible. 
and then drilling down into extra detail as and when required. Ultimately, the point of these reports is to give a snapshot of the trial as you go along. And together with the minutes and recommendation letters of the various committees, demonstrating that the required level of oversight has taken place in the trial and that the trial has been conducted correctly from start to finish. Again, it's not a case of assuming that it wouldn't be, but a case of showing that one has. The burden of proof, because one is aiming to change practice, is on the trialists to demonstrate that the experiment has been fair, even though examples of unfair trials are remarkably rare. So if we want to draw all of this together, we need to think about two important issues. The first one is to safeguard the patient in the trial and indeed the patients who might have their treatment changed as a result of this trial. One needs to be sure that the correct safety data is being collected and it's being inspected in real time, that a disbenefit is not being allowed to persist for too long. In other words, that patients are being caused harm or that the reporting window for safety concerns or outcomes is so short that long-term late sequelae of treatment are not being captured. For example, we know that anthracyclines can cause cardiac issues. So longer-term follow-up may well be important because those cardiac issues do not necessarily manifest themselves immediately. So there's an important point here that one needs to be able to continue to collect data and document these issues over an appropriate window for the treatments being considered. The other point of the report is to demonstrate to those people who may be skeptical of the results of your trial that these results are to be trusted. And this is possibly the hardest point. But with good documentation, one can demonstrate that your trial is fair and has been run honestly and clearly. And this is the important part because one is then able to convince people to change treatment for the better and improve the outcomes of patients in the future. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. There is more detail available on the EHA campus about this, uh, and that can be accessed via www.ehaweb.org. Thank you very much.